first, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Maybe to get us started, I'll let you introduce yourself. You can tell us a little bit about where you went to college, what you majored in, and what your extracurriculars were. Sure. So my name is Elena Schwartz. I'm a producer at Slate Magazine. Uh, I make a show, a daily news show called What Next? And... The stuff I did in college has pretty much nothing to do with that whatsoever. (laughs) I went into college very interested in race and the justice system and how those two things interact. I still am really interested in that. And so a lot of what I did in college was very much geared towards that. I studied an interdisciplinary sort of build your own social science major. And my, my focus field was race, class, and the law. So I took a lot of classes that had to do with those subjects. I wrote a thesis my senior year about racial disparities under the federal sentencing guidelines. I actually worked in a prison for a while teaching GED classes and teaching English to ICE detainees. So I was very, very geared towards doing maybe advocacy work, maybe legal work after college. I think like a lot of people, law school was sort of a convenient next step for me or at least a like a if not an easy option then at least a safe option is the next step and then then I pivoted and I ended up doing something completely different at least for the time being and I'm really glad I did because I love what I do awesome well I'm really excited to talk about that pivot but before we jump in can you just tell us uh where you graduated college and when yeah I graduated from Harvard back in 2019 so I've been out of school for almost exactly three years which is crazy to say my name is Sarah Seymour and I graduated from Yale University in 2018 like a lot of 20-somethings I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do when I graduated I remember literally googling what do people do all day and feeling like unless I conducted a ton of informational interviews, there was no really good way to figure out what different jobs were like. I remember when I was applying to college, there was the Fisk Guide to Colleges, which was this book that described different colleges, what size they were, what the vibe was on campus, and so on and so forth. And all I wanted was for that to exist, but for careers. So this podcast is my best effort to create that through a series of informational interviews. I'll be interviewing people anywhere between three and ten years out of college across different industries to try to help you get a sense of different career paths. Just like you, these people have gone to liberal arts colleges and universities and weren't exactly sure what they wanted to do afterwards. The only difference is they're a few years out of college and can give you the inside scoop on what they were looking for, how they found their jobs, and how it turned out. So you mentioned that coming out of college, you sort of thought that you were going to maybe go into some policy work or advocacy work. What was your first job coming out of college? So basically earlier in college, that is what I had sort of envisioned for myself. And at the same time, I kind of had this itch to do something in the audio world, which is very unlike me. I'm not, I'm generally a very rational person, not a very intuitive person. And this was like one of the few times in my life where I made a decision very much based on instinct. It was just kind of this itch that I ignored for a while because 
I very much felt like I was too late. Like it, it, which is kind of crazy to say in hindsight, you know, I was 20, but it felt like everybody who was interested in journalism or interested in storytelling was editor of the newspaper or was working at a radio station already had all this experience that I didn't have. And so I was kind of just like, okay, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. But that itch to do this other thing really didn't go away. And so I basically did a couple of things my senior year to try to set myself up for maybe that pivot. And then I graduated with a summer gig, which was, I was a, I was an assistant producer for this really wonderful guy who was making a pilot of a new podcast for WGBH. So I was helping him make this like first introductory episode. It was a two month gig. It was part time. And I didn't really know what was going to come after that. It sort of just bought me time in the summer to feel like, okay, I'm getting my feet wet. I'm doing something. Maybe I can convert this into something else. And I essentially graduated with that in my pocket, not knowing what was ahead and told myself, I've got a year. You know, I don't have to make it in a year. I don't have to be Audie Cornish in a year. But, you know, if in a year I've made some progress and I'm liking what I'm doing, I'll stick with it. If in a year I've gotten nowhere, I have nothing to show for it, then I will take the LSAT and I will go down that path that I've sort of been on for a while. Yeah, I love that. I think the idea of sort of like giving yourself a little bit of a runway to try something out is, you know, very scary, but you know, ultimately potentially very rewarding. So you said you had this itch for, you know, working in journalism and audio specifically. What what specifically do you think drew you to that? Were, were there sort of, was it a sort of type of day that you were looking for? Were there activities that you were excited about? Was it more about the content? What sort of drew you in that direction? So it's funny because now having done this work for for three years, I guess, <laughs> I, you know, I can say retroactively, like, oh, these are all the things I love about my job now. It's tough to remember what it is, like what I imagined it would be like, what it was that drew me in. I really just think I found the creative and analytical elements of it really exciting and inspiring. Like the idea that my job all day because I had a little bit of journalism experience only in the sense of I had worked on my high school newspaper but I knew I liked storytelling I knew that I was a pretty good writer and that I really enjoyed the kind of intellectual and creative exercise of watching different pieces of information that you know you need to integrate sort of get woven together and turn into this thing this narrative that is compelling that can teach someone something maybe make someone look at something a different way. I knew that I found that kind of exercise really interesting and engaging. And I like people. I like working with people. I like helping people tell their stories to a platform they might not have by themselves, maybe in a more compelling way than they'd be able to manufacture it all by themselves. I just found those things really exciting, and I knew that I would enjoy that element of the work. And now, of course, there are other things that I really appreciate about it, but I think that's what the initial spark was for me. And so for that first job at WGBH, you said that you sort of felt a little bit like you were already behind, which I, you know, I can understand that feeling to some extent, even though you were able to sort of pivot into that role. How did you find that job? And what was the application process like? That 
was really a huge stroke of luck, like some perseverance and a lot of luck. And I think that that would be some advice I would give anyone going into this field and probably most other fields. Like I heard the statistic quoted to me by some career counselor or other, which is like 50% of jobs are never posted anywhere. Maybe it was like 90% of jobs. I can't even remember the number, but it really is true that a lot of times work, especially shorter term gig work gets picked up through much more informal networks. And that was another thing that I I just really dedicated myself to my senior year of college was reaching out to everybody I could find, everyone I had the remotest connection with, Harvard alums in who are touching audio or touching journalism really any way and just being like, can I buy you coffee? Can we talk on the phone for 30 minutes? I just want to hear more about what you do. And I would always finish those conversations with that like really stock piece of advice, just like, who else can I talk to? You know, is there anyone else you can recommend I get in touch with? And my intention with those phone calls really was just to get a better sense of the industry, but it was also to get my name out there. Like, hey, you know, I am scrappy. I am interested. I'm ambitious. I am willing to do some grunt work. And it really paid off. I spoke to this one guy, and he was a producer at Vox. He's a really wonderful person who I've tapped for advice other times in the years since then. I I reached out to him to say, like, hey, what's your job like? What's your day-to-day like? And then he emailed me the next day, and he said, hey, you know, I was thinking about it, and I actually know this guy in Boston who is looking for an assistant producer You know, it's not going to pay much. It's not good. But, you know, he's a really wonderful person. He's definitely someone who's down to teach. And here's his email. You should just reach out. So I shot, you know, guy number two, Ian Koss. Thank you, Ian, for taking a chance on me. I shot him an email. And I said, you know, hey, I heard you're looking for somebody. Here's my resume. I would really, really love to work with you. And he wrote back and he said, your timing is good. You know, I'm speaking to two other people. Love to talk to you too. We did a really brief informal interview. I met him at this like random coffee shop in Davis Square. And then he emailed me a day later and said, you know, you've got the job if you want it. So it really was, I think you have to do some legwork in order to let luck happen for you. And I'm glad that I had the right people telling me you know, make those calls, send those emails, do that legwork. But from there, it really was just luck that something came around. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I think that that's a really common story of people saying like, oh, I feel like I got lucky, you know, it was sort of serendipitous. But as you're saying, sort of like creating your own serendipity and being able to get your name out there and, and speak with different people, because, you know, those informational interviews, do sometimes convert into something else. How many informational interviews do you think you had to conduct before that <laughs> before that left? Like it wasn't like three. No, it was probably it was more than twenty. And to be clear, that was more than twenty over the course of like a year. You know, that wasn't twenty in two weeks. But I was really reaching out to like everyone and anyone that I could find, and I'm glad I did. I am glad that I did. <laughs> For that first gig, what was the day-to-day like? What were what were some of the things that you were doing as an assistant producer? The day-to-day was a little hectic. I think a lot of what I was doing was less hands-on stuff. 
I was doing, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, less hands-on in the technical elements of producing. So like recording things, mixing things, collecting sound. I was doing really not much of that at all. Most of what I was doing was research. I was logging tape. So for people who don't know, oftentimes if you've got, let's say, a big documentary or an archival piece of tape or maybe somebody gave a speech, you know, you've got this piece of tape and you know you want parts of it, but you're not sure exactly which parts those are. You'll have someone make a tape log with time codes, which basically says, oh, at 30 seconds, Sarah said, you know, what's your favorite part of your job? And that way, the person who is making those final decisions about, okay, I need a clip of Sarah saying, and that's why I love podcasting so much, can look through and say, okay, that happened at three minutes, I can jump right there. That's the piece I'm going to take away. So I was doing a lot of that. And then I was also doing a fair amount of booking, like pre-interviewing people. So identifying people who might be good guests, having phone calls with them to, you know, check up on my, my intuition, see if they really were good guests, and then booking them to speak with the lead producer on the show. In hindsight, I would say Ian, the guy I worked with, is an absolutely wonderful person and I think would have been very, very down to teach me some of those hands-on elements if I had had the confidence to ask, to say, hey, you know, we're going to this museum today, we're going to be recording our walkthrough, I would really love to, you know, make a backup recording alongside yours, do you mind just taking five minutes at the beginning to show me how to do that? I think he would have been thrilled to do that for me. And in hindsight, I wish I'd had the confidence to ask those things because I think that as much as I wanted to be in this world, I already felt like I was going out on a limb so much just by doing this job that I didn't feel qualified for. So I, I think that that's, that's something that I, I take away in hindsight is people are, many people are happy to help you become more qualified within reason. And so with the booking and logging tapes were were those things that you sort of like knew were going to be part of the job were they things that you were familiar with going in or were they really just things that you learned while you were on the job those were things I was pretty well prepared for because the summer after my junior year of college and this is sort of the place I see as that pivot moment I was choosing between a couple of different internships and the one I ended up doing I worked as a news intern at this organization called The Crime Report, which does a lot of great reporting on various criminal justice issues. I did that job essentially because I saw it as keeping a foot in both worlds, that if I had some courage and decided to go for it with journalism, then I was going to finish out the summer with this thick portfolio of articles I'd written. And if I chickened out or I decided I didn't want to go that route and I stayed within the criminal justice realm, I think it would have been very easy to sell that experience and say, hey, I was, this was really a great intellectual exercise learning about a broader spectrum of issues within this realm. So through that work, I did lots of interviews, lots of pre-interviewing, lots of logging tape, lots of booking. And so those were things that I felt like I was already pretty well equipped to do by the time I landed that, uh, the WGBH gig. That's interesting that you sort of like found that internship that was sort of in between the two things that you thought you were interested in. Because I say that, I say this to my um, mentees all the time when they are sort of themselves thinking about pivoting. 
is that it's helpful to find something where like you have a you have a leg up because you have some background in some aspect of what they're doing, but you don't have to have a background in like a hundred percent of what they're doing. So in your case, maybe like getting that internship with Crime Report, you were able to get that because you had this sort of background in your studies in the criminal justice system, but the the journalism aspect was new, and so it helped you make that pivot. Yeah, exactly. That And that was the way that I was thinking about it. I very much sold myself to that organization saying, you know, look at me, I've done all this research on bail reform, on sentencing, you know, I've got this real expertise, I work in this prison, let me bring that to you. Oh, and maybe you can teach me how to write an article in the meantime. So I think that's great advice to use the skills you've already got as an asset when you're making that shift that you're hoping for. So you were at WGBH for two months. What were the hours like while you were there, just before we jumped to your next job? It was very chill because it was part-time work. Like I think that I was putting in max 20 hours a week, and it was very variable because you know some days we would be going on a reporting trip, and that was my whole day. Some days we were going, you know, some days my boss would just send me a couple of pieces of tape and say, can you please just log these by the end of the day? So there was real flexibility. And I was also working part-time doing retail stuff just to make a little bit of money since part-time contract work doesn't always pay so great. So I really appreciated the flexibility that came with doing that job. So then... Once those two months came to an end, what did you do next? The next thing I did, so the whole time I was working that job, I was sending out applications like crazy. (laughs) And I got lucky. You know, some good stuff came through. I ended up spending that whole fall, so September through December, working at this podcast studio in Brooklyn called Pineapple Street Studios. While I was there... My, you know, I had little helper jobs on a couple of different things, but the main project I was working on was a series that Crooked Media did called On the Ground in Iowa. So this was like forever ago, but this was in advance of the 2020 election. And it was actually in advance of the Iowa caucuses. So this series was all about what are the Iowa caucuses? Why do they matter? Should they even exist in the first place? And my main role was helping to produce that. And so you said again that you got lucky, but how did you find that job through applying online or was it again that someone sort of put you in touch with someone? How did that work? So in this case, I applied online through their portal and they have a, I think they have three different internship cycles a year. So anyone looking for an internship, it's a, it's a good spot to start. I think when I say lucky, what I really mean is something that I learned my first year in this industry, which maybe I was naive for not knowing before, but I think was really revelatory for me is how little moving forward, getting jobs often has to do with your abilities and how much it really has to do with having the right stamps. You know, I had applied, this was an internship I'd applied for multiple times already, never gotten so much as an interview. Now, I don't think I was so much more skilled, talented, whatever, but I had a stamp from WGBH 
which is a reputable radio organization, and all of a sudden that was worth considering. And so I think that's what I mean by luck. Is I don't I just don't think that I was radically more talented that time I applied than I had been, you know, six months before when I had applied already. The difference was I had I don't even want to say experience under my belt because there was so much I still didn't know how to do. What I really had was the stamp of approval from another, you know, big enough name that they were willing to consider me. And so then what was that day-to-day like? That day-to-day was not, it was a lot of menial tasks in that job. I was cleaning up transcripts of interviews. I was logging tape. There were plenty of regular, schmegular intern tasks, like, you know, taking out the trash every day, ordering people lunch, buying more almond milk when the fridge ran out. I think that it was very much a good experience being in the same room as people who were doing really, really cool work and getting a better sense of what does their day-to-day look like. Is that something I'm interested in? But at that point in time, I would say what I was doing every day still didn't look that much like what a producer's daily role looks like. Okay. I should have asked with your WGBH role, but so both with the WGBH role and then the Pineapple Studios role, what were some things that you liked about those jobs? And what were some things that someone might not like about those roles, even if it didn't bother you? In the GBH job, something that I really loved was there was a really genuine sense of open-mindedness, excitement, exploration. The show that we were making was a sort of audio spin-off of PBS's show Antiques Roadshow, and the basic premise was that, you know, all these really cool, amazing items come into Antiques Roadshow all the time, and it's a whole adventure in and of itself figuring out are these authentic? Are they real? Are they what people say they are, what people have been led to believe they are. And so for that like that pilot, the thing that we were investigating was this guy had come into the Antiques Roadshow with an American flag and he said, This is the American flag from the night from the ship that JFK had been captaining in World War II that was sunk by torpedoes. And it was this was sort of the night that put JFK on the map that he executed this like heroic rescue of his crew. You know, he swam with them all these miles to some island. He saved one of their lives. You dragged the man in his teeth, et cetera, et cetera. And he was saying, you know, this is my grandfather was one of those men that JFK saved. And this is the flag from their ship. And JFK gave it to him which is a crazy story. And so it was our job to figure out, okay, is that what this is? Is that really, is this flag really the flag from JFK's boat in World War II? And so I think that there was just a certain like whimsicalness, whimsy in the project that was really fun. And especially because it was a pilot, because there wasn't a set format already, I think there was a lot of room to play. You know, we were figuring out for ourselves what did we want the tone of the show to sound like? How seriously were we going to go about this investigation? What angles were we going to try? And it just made it fun. Like, it was very spontaneous, and I really, really loved that about the job. I would say the biggest thing I didn't love about the job was, again, was sort of of my own doing. Like, I most of my 
work was not hands-on in the technical sense. But I think it totally could have been if I had been willing to ask. You know, my lead producer was really busy. He was doing a number of other projects in addition to this one. And so there were definitely teaching moments, but he just didn't have the capacity if I wasn't explicitly asking him to be my instructor and everything. But I think that if, you know, in a couple different moments that I said, hey, would you walk me through this? I'd love to be a part of this element of the process too. He totally would have said yes, and I wish I had done that. And pineapple, I think, hands down, the biggest thing that I loved about it was just getting to be so up close with people I really admired. Like, there's some really, really talented, brilliant people working there, Joel Lovell, Layla Day, just people who have made really cool stuff. And the ethos of the place was very much, you know, these are your colleagues, you should meet them, you should get coffee with every single person in the office. And I did that. Like in my time there, I got coffee with every single person in the office. And it was really wonderful and exciting to talk to these people who'd had amazing careers, who were in the middle of amazing careers and ask them about, you know, what they enjoyed about their jobs, where they were hoping to go next, where they thought our industry was moving. That was amazing. I would say the thing I didn't like is that their internship program, at least while I was there, very much there's a vibe of you are the lowest paid employee here. And you are. You're making minimum wage. But, you know, you're being asked to do these things that other employees would not do. You're taking out everybody's trash every day. You're ordering people lunch. You know, I went out in blizzards to get people more tampons. And I don't know whether that's still how they run the program. I think it influences your experience and the way that you're able to move through the workplace when it is made very clear that you exist on sort of a separate plane from everybody else. And I didn't love that part of the job. And I think probably a lot of people wouldn't love that part of the job. Yeah, that can be tough. And I think it's it's interesting because it's very different from one internship to the next as to like whether or not that ends up being part of the experience. And it can be really tough if that is part of your experience because it's hard to sort of figure out like what am I learning from this if this is really something that's like an errand for someone else, like a personal errand for someone else. So you were at Pineapple Studios for from September to December. What was your next step after that? So I left Pineapple to take an internship at All Things Considered at NPR. And I think that's a really great example of a learning internship. You know, there were totally a couple menial tasks I had to do while I was there. I really don't know how COVID has changed things. It could be that these are not things that people need to do anymore. You know, I had to sort people's mail. I had to deliver scripts to the hosts during showtime, though frankly, I didn't mind that at all. I loved being able to run into the studio while like Ari Shapiro and Audie Cornish were in there. That was really cool for me. <laughs> but I think that's a that was a great example of a teaching internship. And that was the first time that I felt like, oh, I'm I'm really a producer. And you know, in some ways you're not. There is definitely I don't even want to call it handholding. I think there's a recognition that you're green and that there's a lot you don't know and a lot that 
you need to learn, but I think the ethos of it is very much like there's a lot we can teach you. And you do need to advocate for yourself. You do need to ask people, hey, you know, can you show me how you did that? But that was the first role in which I was like, oh, I'm I'm really doing the thing. You know, I was producing segments, start to finish, nuts to bolts, that were airing on national radio to millions of listeners. And that was really, really exciting. So NPR internships are hard to get. They're very much, I think, the mountaintop for anyone who's interested in audio journalism. But they are so worth it, so worth applying to. And for what it's worth, I got that job the fifth time I applied. So (laughs) persistence can really pay off if you are willing and able to be patient. Yeah, and so with that... With that application, was it again online? Yep, it was the same thing. They have uh, three internship cycles every year. You've got to pay close attention to the dates because I think the window is open for like two weeks. So you've got to be watching that website. Watched that website, sent in my cover letter, sent in my application. And and yeah, that time it worked out. And do you think it was a similar thing from like going from GBH to Pineapple and then Pineapple to NPR that sort of you had these stamps of approval from these other internships that the fifth time it worked out. Yeah, absolutely. And for all that I loved that job and think really, really highly of NPR's internship program, that was totally a source of a little disillusionment for me. I'd applied five times, every single other time, the four times I got rejected every time I was like, okay, well, you know, there are just other people who are more brilliant, more creative, you know, have this Rolodex of amazing contacts that they could book for the show, and I don't have that. It's okay, you know, it's just, I just got to keep working until I'm as amazing as they are, and maybe there will be a place for me there. And then when I got the internship, it was like, oh, well, I'm not so much smarter or skillful or more creative than I was six months ago. The difference is that now this other reputable place is willing to sort of vouch for me. And so, at least in so far as they were willing to hire me themselves. And I think that that made all the difference. So, yeah, that was definitely a source of a little bit of disappointment and disillusionment to realize. It was not about being so unbelievably brilliant. It really was about just waiting for your number to come up. So you mentioned that your role at NPR was sort of the first time that you really felt like you were a producer. What do you think changed in terms of your day-to-day? Or, you know, what were you doing that made you feel that way? I think so much changed. My my job previously had been producers had their visions and they delegated little incremental pieces of those visions to me. And so I had very little involvement in the you know, the the actual storytelling of something. Whereas at NPR, I was able to take ownership over pretty much the whole thing. You know, I was pitching ideas every single day in pitch meetings. Sometimes those ideas got picked up. Sometimes they didn't. When they didn't, I'd be assigned other stories. You know, I was part of the, the idea generation stage. You know, it was my job to reach out to people, to interview people, to record those interviews. And then I was also getting to do the mixing, the actual production piece where I was, you know, writing a script and chopping up the tape I'd collected 
and arranging everything into what I thought was going to be the most compelling story. And, you know, making sure that everything, the volume, the music, everything was mixed to the right radio specifications. It was just way more involvement and way more granularity than I had had in any other role. And I totally, I loved it. It was really fantastic. I imagine that some of those activities were new for you. Was that just learning on the job? Was it sort of like built into the internship program that they were teaching you those things? How did that work? There were really great opportunities to learn on the job. And I had some experience, you know, I had, I, sort of taken a like crash course in Hindenburg, which is one audio editing software, and then I taught myself a lot more in terms of how to use it. And so I had, you know, I think learning different audio editing softwares can be like learning different romance languages. It's like, it's not the same thing. It's not necessarily easy to jump from one to the other, but you sort of have these like basic a basic foundation that you're working off of because you know what you need to figure out how to do. NPR uses its own software, very own software that its engineers created just for NPR and you won't use it anywhere else. So I had never had a chance to learn that before. But having some familiarity in Hindenburg, which is the other software I'd been using, I was able to pick it up relatively quickly. And there were also really great teaching opportunities there were these sort of stock stories that existed already that interns were able to use where you download the elements, they'd have the script, and they would say, okay, you know, recreate this story. Like, here you can listen to it, here's the script, here are all the pieces, build it back from scratch. And that was a really good learning experience, and there were a couple of really wonderful patient producers who would take the time to listen to my work and give me feedback you know, help me get everything up to snuff. So a lot of it was learning on the job, but I think I did have a certain foundation to work from, from stuff I had done previously. What were the hours like? Or, and like, did you ever have to work on weekends? The only time I had to work on weekends was after I finished up at All Things Considered. I took a temp job at Weekend Edition. So then just by the nature of the show, I was I was working weekends and my weekends were Monday and Tuesday. But something I really appreciated about NPR was I did feel like it may be different at higher levels, but at least at lower levels, your time is pretty sacred. You know, we were supposed to be working every day, nine to six. I showed up every day at 9 without fail. I don't think I ever left later than 6.15. And I appreciated that because you're being paid an hourly wage. You're being paid minimum wage. So I think that to not respect someone's time in a situation like that would be a little exploitative. And I'm glad that they did. I'm glad that there was, I think, just kind of a general sensibility of like, here's when you're on the clock when you're off the clock and it helps that you know you put out a daily show our show ran four to six every day so at 6 p.m once the show's done you know you're you're all set that's all you really have to do (laughs) and then you gotta come back tomorrow and do it again and with pineapple studios what were the hours at pineapple my hours were 10 to 6 it was pretty faithful to 10 to 6 I think there were a couple more occasions where things would come up. I'd be asked to stick around. I'd be asked to run an errand that was going to happen after work. But generally pretty faithful to those hours, too. 
And then, so going back to NPR, we've talked about what you've liked about the role, but was there anything that you think someone might not have liked about that internship, even if it didn't bother you? Yeah, I think that, I think you really need to be able to advocate for yourself to get somewhere at NPR. You know, I don't think it's in conflict. I think there are a lot of people who are willing to help you if you ask, but you have to be proactive in asking And there's a certain amount of precarity being in that place. You know, NPR is a pretty bottom-heavy pyramid. You know, three times a year they take in this class of interns. They've got all these producers. They've got fewer, you know, line producers, which is a high role, even fewer executive producers, not that many editors. And then, you know, what is it, maybe 20 hosts? So it's this pyramid that's very wide at the bottom very narrow at the top. And what that means is that advancing there is a very slow and low process. It takes a while to climb that ladder. So you need to be comfortable with constantly scrapping to stick around, you know. At the end of my internship, I was not initially offered temp work because the pandemic had just started, things were kind of crazy. What really saved my butt is that because the pandemic had started and they canceled their summer internship program, NPR authorized shows to keep their interns around if the interns wanted to stay for another two months. So I had my internship contract extended, and then by the time that wrapped up, things were stable enough that I was able to find a temp job at Weekend Edition. You know, point being, that whole time I was reaching out to the executive producers of all the different shows in the building saying, do you need anybody? Do you need any temps? I would love to stay. Do you need anybody? And so was everybody else. And so that insecurity can be really difficult to manage. And I know a lot of people leave for that reason. That was not my primary reason for leaving, but it totally helped that when I had the chance to get a full-time job, you know, with a higher salary and health insurance and security, I was like, sign me up. I, I don't want to have to keep, you know, hunting, hunting constantly for where my next gig is going to be coming from. And do you think that's pretty common where people who are sort of early in their careers as producers are in this sort of like internship slash contract role cycle where it's is is it most like are there full-time jobs coming right out of college or is it mostly these sort of like internships and contract positions or is it a mix truth be told I don't know I can really only speak for the way that I did it which was like this so you know and obviously the other people I met were people who were doing it the same way people who were also taking internships taking fellowships, taking contract work until they were able to build up enough experience to land something full-time. Maybe there are some people who are able to get those jobs right out of college. They would have to be people who'd already built up way more experience than I had when I graduated. You know, if there are people doing that, kudos to them. It was not, not at all what I did, and it was not what I saw the people around me doing either. And so how long were you in the temp role at Weekend Edition? I was actually only in that role for about two months because my contract at All Things Considered wrapped up in June, started at Weekend right away, and then I got my current job in August of 2020, so I gave my two weeks notice, and that was that. And so how did you find your job at Slate? 
essentially the same way I found everything else. I That whole internship, I was hustling. I was checking job sites consistently. You know, I had a list of maybe 12 companies I'd be open to working for, you know, in addition to just checking up on LinkedIn, checking up on a couple of listservs that I'm a part of. And it was like every single week, I'd open every one of those 12 career pages, scan it, see what was open. If I saw something that might be a fit, apply right then. This was just one of those jobs I saw. And the nice thing was, you know, at that point in my career, I was still early enough that my next step, I just, you know, it would have been great to be doing something that was good. But really, the big thing I cared about was, like, I just, I need some security right now. I've, I've gone through a year of insecurity, a year of minimum wage. I need some security. And I remember listening to the show that I now produce because I was applying to this job and being like, oh, this is good. Like, and saying to my partner, I was like, you know, this is actually good. And it would be really, how exciting would it be to make something good? <laughs> so which is nice in hindsight, because that is how it worked out. And so how did you determine which 12 companies you thought you might be interested in working for? Was it based on geography? Was it based on subject matter? How are you picking that? At that point in time, kind of similar to what we were talking about earlier, you know, I was, I figured I had this newsroom experience, the easiest jobs to get next were going to be news adjacent jobs. So I was looking at Sites whose news coverage I respected, who had audio arms, basically, which is not everybody. I was looking at the places that did have that and checking up on them routinely. And by that point in time, so I had been living in New York before I had started at NPR. I moved to D.C. to work at NPR. I went back to New York when the pandemic started to be with my partner. And in that point in time, it was like, that was my other specification. I want some full-time work. I want it to be New York based. And so those were the two sort of overbilling restrictions on what I was looking at. Okay, so you get this role at Slate. What what actually, I guess, not just Slate, but sort of like going back across the other positions as well. What is the application process like after you apply? Like, are you, are you submitting clips? And so they're sort of, judging you based off of that is it interviews what do you have to like do a test to it what what's that sort of like it is really dependent on the place I it could be that they asked for more for NPR I really think that all I did was submit I think they had a space where you could submit samples of your work and I did that but it was mostly just resume cover letter and then it was one interview. That was it. <laughs> and it was very, I mean, my boss at the time, who's a wonderful person, but like has a very brusque, no-nonsense manner. He emailed me without identifying himself at all. It just the subject matter was ATC interview. And he said, hi, Elena, are you free for an interview sometime this Thursday, Ollie? And then there was the NPR logo at the bottom. So I was like, who is this? Like, what is this? But because the NPR logo was there, I was like, ATC. Okay, that must be all things considered. <laughs> and that was it. He called me up. We talked for not even 30 minutes. And then the next day he said, well, it's yours if you want it. <laughs> but you got to decide fast. And so, <laughs> that you know, some places have a much clippier process. The process for getting my job at Slate was really slow. I think first, 
it was like four different rounds of interviews. And then I had to do an edit test where they sent me, they sent me a raw interview and I had to cut it, arrange it, essentially turn it into a show. After that, they still hadn't made up their minds. And so they asked whoever else was left and me to send in three pitches along with the guests that we would prefer for the show. So it was very labor intensive. And I love my job and I would never speak ill of my great colleagues. I think it was a lot to a lot of unpaid work to put somebody through and you know, should I ever be in the position where I'm hiring, I would definitely be I think more more restrained than what I'm asking someone who is not on my payroll yet to do for me. And so what does your day-to-day look like now? And has it changed or evolved while you've been at Slate? So my day-to-day right now, what I really love about my current job is that all of us wear a lot of different hats and we sort of rotate through them. So the kind of three buckets that make our show run, you have your booker, who's the person pitching ideas, finding guests, setting up those interviews, and doing the research so that the host will be prepared for the interview. You've got the editor who records the interview, chops it up, turns it into a semblance of a show. And then you have the mixer who gives the editor notes on that draft of the show, helps them get it into final form, and then does all the finishing touches like adding music, leveling everybody's voices. Those are sort of the three roles that make our show run. And all of us producers take turns wearing those hats. So my job today is to be the mixer. That person starts their work later in the day because you have to have a draft show to look at, which is why I have time to talk to you right now. (laughs) Tomorrow, I will be booking. I will be looking for guests for our show, coming up with ideas. And that variability, while it means my schedule can be a little hectic and unpredictable, is also something I really love about my job because it means that It's never boring. I'm always getting to switch up what I'm working on and the kind of work that I'm doing, which side of my brain is active. And I really like that. Yeah, it's also super cool because one of the sort of like ideas behind this podcast is that, you know, people aren't really familiar with all of the professional options that are out there. And I don't think until I watched the morning show on Apple TV, like I didn't know that a booker was a, a profession. Like I didn't know that, it, oh, and it it makes sense that someone has to do that. But I just like had no idea that that even existed as a job. So that's super cool that that is sort of part of what you get to do, and that you get to do it alongside these other aspects of your of your day. And so, what are your now that you're in a full time role? What are your hours like? My hours are a little crazy. And it would be honestly difficult to even spell them out because they're so variable. It really depends on is news breaking, which hat am I wearing today? Yesterday I was booking a guest and I had already, I already had essentially got the person on lock. The main thing I had to do was do the web build out for a different show that was in process and then also create what we call the prep doc which is basically the thing the host reads to get ready for the interview. So yesterday I was off by like six, plenty of days I'm working till 11, though those are days that I am coming on later in the day. My hours can be a little tough, and I think that news in general is probably not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Especially not if if 
you're young. I think you've got to be a little bit hungry and also a little bit ready to self-flagellate to do this job. Well, so, and you're producing podcasts for the next day. Yes. So it's, there's very little margin for error. And when you're booking someone, it's for like, you know, later today or is, is that, or tomorrow? Is that right? So when we book someone, it's usually for the next day. So, you know, the person I'm booking today is the person we're interviewing tomorrow morning. And that interview becomes the next day's show. So, yeah, there is not much margin for error. The deadlines are pretty inflexible. And are you working weekends in this role? No, I work a very strict Monday through Friday. <laughs> okay, okay. And what have you liked about this job? And what do you think someone might not like about the job, even if it doesn't bother you? What I love about my job is my colleagues. I really, really admire their work. I trust their judgment. I respect the calls they make. And I feel really respected by them. I think that that is not the case everywhere you go. Some environments are competitive. Some environments are not warm, not welcoming. It makes a huge, a world of difference to me that I feel that my work and my judgment is really respected by my colleagues. And so, and I think that's really vital to the work we do because our process is very collaborative. And so I think if other people didn't think my work was good and didn't trust me to go do a good job or vice versa, it would not run smoothly. <laughs> so that's something I really, really appreciate. Uh, in terms of what I don't like about my job, I think that... I think we really just need more resources. I think that more resources would make the hours, the workload, a little more humane. And I think that's, some, that's something you'll see in a lot of places in journalism is that newsrooms right now, if you're anywhere that isn't the New York Times, are pretty under-resourced. And that's a challenge because it doesn't impact how much work is landing on your desk at any given moment. So you mentioned that like how important it is to you that you work with people who respect you and who you respect. Do you feel like that was something that you were able to sort of suss out during the interview process or has it been, or something that you were able to sort of suss out before the interview process or has that been sort of a happy accident? I think I did get a sense of that during the interview process. I remember thinking at various points in time, like, oh, this is a really democratic space. This is a place where the structure is very horizontal and we all have a lot of say in how things are done, which meant a lot to me. That is really, that is not, not the case everywhere. But you could see that through like who was interviewing you or? It was through the way that people talked about their work. You know, the way that people talked about like, you know, for instance, there are a lot of places where host is king. The host's judgment goes. You do not question the host. You know, there's probably a little host worship at Slate, but it is just such a different dynamic from anywhere else I've worked where the host of my show, Mary Harris, is excellent. I think her judgment is amazing. There are times when I disagree with her, and I've never bit my tongue. I've never felt like I couldn't say, hey, I actually think that you should rewrite this, or, oh, I think that, you know, we should change the way that this is structured right now. That means a lot to me. That's not the case everywhere. So looking back across sort of all of these different roles, 
when you were first coming out of college, it sounded like what you were looking for was just an opportunity to get your feet wet. You were sort of trying to pivot into an industry that you maybe didn't have a ton of background in. What are, what are you sort of like prioritizing in your career now that you have gotten your feet wet and are a little bit more established? Now that I am at a more established place, I'm really prioritizing, first of all, not giving up any ground. You know, I'm geographically where I want to be. I'm making a good salary. I have the security of a full-time job, and I wouldn't trade any of those things. So (laughs) I think not giving up ground is a big one. Beyond that, my priority is really at this point doing something where my heart is, something where I feel really inspired or excited by the work. And I think that means my next step, I hope, is going to be into a more like narrative storytelling direction, which was always what was most exciting to me about this world. And I'm hoping that that is where I'm headed towards. What do you think is the best professional advice that you've received along the way? I think the best advice I received really was just to keep talking to people because case in point, like I I see my whole career up to this point as essentially the product of like a good game of dominoes, you know, like everything just, you know, one thing led to another, led to another, led to another, you know, as we already talked about, I think there is totally a piece of like doing the legwork to put yourself in a place where things can happen for you. Because I don't think that anything just falls out of the sky. That was the best advice I got, was putting myself in that place. By calling people, calling people, asking people, what do you like about your job? Trying to build connections with people. And, you know, making me ask. Because I think so long as you're respectful of people's time and you express real and genuine gratitude for the ways that they're helping you out, the vast majority of people I reached out to were more than game to chat with me. And I really think it made all the difference. And what advice do you have for someone who is maybe in college right now or a few years out of college and maybe is thinking that they want to pivot into the podcast producing world? My advice would be that if you can afford it, which not everybody can, but if you can afford it, you have to start from a place of humility. And that means that internships are not below you. You know, I think a lot of people, I think that caveat is important because, again, I was lucky. I didn't have student loans. You know, I had a stable family home that I knew if all else fails, if next week I'm out of my butt, I can go home. So I had this, you know, sort of a safety blanket that I needed in order to take these jobs. But I worked minimum wage for a year. It was not comfortable. It wasn't fun. I didn't get to go on great vacations though COVID hit, so no one really got to go on great vacations. (laughs) But, you know, it was doable. Without those loans, without other significant financial obligations, it was doable for me to do that. And I talked to a lot of people who, it doesn't even occur to them to apply for internships because they just imagine, oh, that's something I left behind in college. You know, they feel above doing that. And I totally understand where that impulse comes from. I think that breaking in somewhere new requires the humility to say, I'm going to start from scratch. And that is really what starting from scratch looks like. And I'll just say, you know, one of my co-interns when I was at All Things Considered was brilliant. I was 22 at the time. She was 27. 
She had had this whole other career. She'd been a consultant. She'd been an author. Really interesting, really successful person. Way more life experience than me. And she decided she wanted to do something new. And so she was starting from scratch at the exact same place that I was. And I think if people have the humility to do that, and again, you know, the resources that it takes to make that possible, don't be afraid of starting at the bottom because I think that really is often the most direct way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's interesting because it's very industry and job specific where, you know, for t- like, for example, in audio producing, like maybe the answer is you have to do that. Like it's not even an option. It's not like there's, there's an alternative. You really have to be able to, to be humble and, and take those roles. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to cover? No, this was very comprehensive. I think we got it all. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, Sarah. And good luck with this show. It's really cool that you're doing it. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast. If you want to be super extra supportive, share it with a friend. I also want to hear from you. If you have a suggestion for a specific guest, or if there's a type of job, role, or company you'd like me to explore, let me know. Just send your suggestions to what do people do all day 2022 at gmail.com. See you next week.